everything you've ever worked on, everything you thought was innovative or creative, uh, every industry you've ever worked on that's all back there as unrelated stimulus to help you solve the challenge. But the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed. You don't have time to think and therefore you can't come up with a big idea. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast and I'm your host, George Khalife. On this episode, I interviewed Duncan Wardle, who worked for Disney for 25 years, most recently as their head of innovation and creativity. Duncan now serves as an independent innovation and design thinking consultant, helping companies embed that culture of innovation and creativity across their organization. What I loved about this episode is how engaging it was all throughout. We ran through different activities that really test your river of thinking and help you understand how you can push past those barriers to creativity. The one thing I wanted to start by asking you, and for people who don't know, you you spent the majority of your career uh, at Disney, and no, no, all, very, all my all, my all your career. Yeah, I mean, you you yeah. transitioned recently, um, you know, to, to starting out your own practice around yep. creativity, innovation, consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you were there, you started out on the press publicity side, and then you yep. kind of tra- transitioned to becoming the head of uh, global PR and then head of That's innovation it. and creativity. That's the one, right? When when you were in that seat, especially with the you know, heading up the innovation, creativity, and the company looks to you to somehow increase the capacity for creativity. What are you thinking in that moment? Oh shit, it's mine. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it's real. I remember, get, I remember getting the call. So I was the guy. Look, I grew up through PR. I started mm. in public relations. My very first gig. I was the coffee boy in the London office. I used to get six cappuccinos a day from my boss for the local deli. That's what I did. I was 21 or 22. I just graduated college. And um, I was told three weeks in, you're going to be the character coordinator tonight at the royal premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the presence of the Princess of Wales, Princess Diana. I was like, okay, sure. I said, what, 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 what do I do? They said, oh, you just stand at the bottom of the stairs and make sure the character doesn't hurt himself. Said, oh, okay, I could do that. So I was standing at the bottom of the stairs. Now, contingency plan would tell you that the average step on a stair is the same length as your foot unless you are an extremely tall rabbit with very long feet. And we're so, <laughs> with about six steps to go, Roger trips over Roger's own feet and goes hurtling through the air towards the head of the Princess of Wales, whereupon he was taken out with no hesitation by two Royal Protection Officers. And there's a very famous photograph, it's in black and white, it's on Reuters, of, uh, of these two Secret Service heavies on top of Roger, who's lying on the ground, and this 22-year-old little publicist the, in the background going, ah, shit, I'm fired. And so I didn't go to work the next day. I was convinced I was fired. I got a call from the boss. Where are you? I said, I'm at home. He said, why? I said, well, I assume I was fired. He goes, no, this is exactly the sort of publicity we needed for Roger Rabbit. I was like, oh my God, I can make a career out of this. And so I did. I was just the guy who would come up with the most mad, audacious, outrageous, unachievable ideas and get them done. So uh, I got to send my son's Buzz Lightyear, uh, an 18-inch plastic to doll. space. To, to space on the internet. He's the longest serving, if you look up in the Guinness Book of Records, I'll have you know Buzz Lightyear is in fact the longest serving astronaut in space. Is he still there? Months. Or- no, he's in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can go find him there in the Air and Space Museum. So, so 10 years ago, yes. I got a call from our chairman who said, look, you're the guy with all the, the big ideas who actually seems to get them done. Um, mm. You're going to be in charge of innovation and creativity, to which I replied, well, what the hell is that? And he said, what does that I mean? don't know. I don't know. We just need more of it. And I remember his last <laughs> words very specifically were, we need to innovate at scale. She went, oh, right. Okay. 
Okay, so the first thing I did was, because I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. So the first thing I did was survey 5,000 people across the organization at all different levels, from animators to Imagineers to people at Lucasfilms, Marvel, Pixar, and just asked, what are the barriers of getting in the way of inside a big corporate enterprise of you being more innovative and more creative? And we found five. No surprise to most people listening. Number one, I don't have time to think. Still considered the number one barrier to innovation by most CEOs of most organizations. Number two, I'm risk averse. I've got quarterly results to meet and I'll come back to that in just a minute. Number three, uh, we are um, still product centric. We're not a consumer centric organization. Our consumer insights is uh, dramatically underused. Uh, number four, ideas get stuck, diluted or killed as they move through the process. And number five was we all had a different definition of innovation. So we're all heading in a different direction. So you're like, hmm, great, okay. So, um, I thought, hmm, and I tried four models of innovation. Model number one, I didn't know what I was doing. So I hired IDEO because I figured they did. And I said, hey, here's your brief. Make me look good. Not quite. I'm being facetious. But I would hire IDEO. They would come in, run an innovation project for three or four months. Very good at what they did. But of course, they weren't responsible for execution. Then they would leave. And you'd look around the organization and say, hmm, have we learned anything about how they do what they do? And of course, no, of course you haven't because you wouldn't hire them again. So you thought, hmm, okay. So let's create an innovation team. I'll be in charge of it. Nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> what the challenge with this is you can act as a catalyst for change, but subliminally, you've just told the rest of the organization, oh, we've got an innovation team. Thank God. I'll just keep doing business the way I've always done it. That's a very dangerous message to send to an organization. Uh, model number three, we would do hackathons. Um, mm -hmm. Usually very good at bringing products and services quicker to market, as were as was the accelerator program where we bring in young tech startups and partner them with people who knew how to scale stuff. Um, but what we learned from all four models was we hadn't learned to innovate at scale. Why had we not learned to innovate at scale? Because we were in the same position as every other company that I listened to all of their C-suites saying, we must innovate, you must take risks, we must be brave, we must think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, yeah, that's great, how? Are you gonna show me how? And nobody's showing people how. There's this monstrous gap in the market. And I thought, God, because people say, why did you leave? You were in charge of innovation and creativity. Are you nuts? Um, well, I was there 30 years. That's three decades to be precise. I got, I'm looking at my bronze Jiminy Cricket as we speak, my 30 years of magical service statue. And I just thought, you know what? I got to go do something different. And I saw this gap in the market. And I thought, I'm going to go out and help people innovate. How do you do that? I created a toolkit that makes innovation easy creativity tangible and the process fun companies hate the word fun they think it doesn't imply business result you can't productivity. you can't yeah. change a culture by talking about it and having mission statements on a bronze plaque on a wall um, mm. you've got to give people a toolkit they choose to use when you're not around therefore right. it better be easy tangible and fun um, and that's what I do now. I go around teaching people. I, I spend a third of my time, I do a lot of public speaking, but I also, a lot of my time is actually training organizations how to use the whole design thinking process. And then a third of my time actually helping them use that process to uh, run uh, innovation sessions to come up with new products and services and take them to market. Um, so that's what I do. So let's just come back to a couple of those for a moment though. Let's take, you know, risk aversion. I've got quarterly results to meet. Well, here's the thing. Wall Street dominated the way we do business from 1920 to 2020. I'm not so sure it will continue to. Why, why, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, what do you mean, Duncan? Are you crazy? Well, look, here's the thing. We are all investing, and rightly so, in artificial intelligence, uh, you know, machines that will be thousands of times more intelligent than the human race by 2030. We're all investing in big data, and we should. 
and we're all investing in blockchain, which will make the world a whole lot more transparent than it is now, which is good. But who's watching out for Generation Z? A generation who care more about purpose than profit. A generation who not only will not buy your products and services if they don't believe in what you stand for, they don't want to work for you either. Well, mm. how the hell will you be relevant 10 years from now for generation? So here's the importance of purpose. Most companies still don't understand what purpose means. They think it's a charitable cause or a philanthropic effort. It's not. It's why do you come to work? Why do, why do, what does your company do that gives them the right to sell me anything? And so I was asked to give a talk to the world's largest tool manufacturer. They make more commercial tools than any other company. They're the biggest brand. And I know nothing about tools. I'm a disaster in DIY, especially it's in Swedish and comes in a flat hat box. Um, but here's the thing. I've, how do I learn more about their consumer? So I went down to Home Depot and Lowe's and I hung out on the aisle like some creepy dude, watching their consumer and listening. And I went back to report to them. I said, hey, this generation has never heard of you. They've never heard of your brand. They don't talk about you. They don't talk about your products, the hammer, the chisel, or the saw. They're not even talking about the price point. They don't care. They're talking about what's important to them. We're mm. going to build our dream bath, and we're going to remodel our dream kitchen. We're going, to, we're going to build our dream apartment, our dream house. I said, your purpose, if you choose to create one, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. And they looked at me like I was start raving nuts because they were like, well, how's that going to help me drive my quarterly results? It might not, but it might save your job, might save your career, might save your industry. But actually, it's already too late. Why is it already too late? Well, because their definition for innovation today isn't its iteration. They're going to expand into India and Mexico, but they have a growing middle class. They will buy our tools. No, they won't buy you tools why will they not buy your tools because we're printing houses in houston texas today on a 3d printer um <laughs> that's why and so um so for um the um you know mexico city and shanghai have already announced they're going to create new suburbs on 3d printers amazon spends billions of dollars a year on shipping every year it is not in their best interest to continue to do that 10 years from now 15 years ago you didn't have a smartphone 15 years from now i put it to you that the third of what you buy online you will print in your living room a book easily a table absolutely a chair yes of course uh, so if i can print anything i want on demand 15 to 20 years from today what will i use a hammer a chisel or a saw for oh no that's right they'll be in the smithsonian museum next to my son's birth night year but because they don't if they had a purpose with a with a brand who helps people build their dreams they could be in hospitality they could be in entertainment they could be in finance they could be in banking they could be in education they could be in anything they wanted to be but they can't see it because they don't have a purpose and i promise you the tall industry will be gone by 2030 that's for sure right well i, I think what we you know one of the things that really resonates with me when i watched your tedx is you you basically pose the question to the audience you're like listen when you guys think of the most creative states that you were in just kind of close your eyes reflect on this where were you at the point right. where that happened right what were you guys doing a lot of people said i was right. in the shower i was yep. uh chilling watching netflix i was playing a game so, whatever nobody so said back, work no exactly so let's come back to time to think right? if you ask people where are they when they get their best idea exactly right they'll say shower walking jogging commuting, <laughs> uh, anything except at work and then you think about that last verbal argument you were in with somebody you're shouting and screaming at each other and you walk away you're fuming and you sit down you relax you get me cappuccino and bang a killer one liner comes zapping into your brain the one perfect line that you wished you'd used during the argument but you didn't because you didn't come up with it in the argument it always comes five minutes later why because your brain in an argument is very busy defending itself guess what your brain looks like in an office i'm doing meetings i'm doing scheduling i'm doing presentations i'm talking to people and i hear myself say 
I don't have time to think. But the split second you gave yourself time to think, you stepped into the shower or you stepped away from the argument, you came up with a killer one-liner or the big idea. Well, why does it work like that? Because your brain, believe it or not, goes through four brain states in any given day. I'll, I'll address three of them. Um, your brain, when you're in an argument or in the office, is in what I call busy beta, where the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed. But guess what? 87% of your brain is subconscious. And so you don't have access to it when it's closed. Everything you've ever worked on, everything you thought was innovative or creative, uh, every industry you've ever worked on that's all back there as unrelated stimulus to help you solve the challenge. But the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed. You don't have time to think and therefore you can't come up with a big idea. But the moment you step into the shower, boom, that door opens just wide enough that you can have your big ideas. So now option A, we can bring showers to the office, probably not HR compliant and quite <laughs> frankly, probably quite ugly. Um, so option B, how do you get people in that brain state on demand? I run something called an energizer. It's a 60 second exercise. It's, uh, it's designed to make people laugh. The moment I hear laughter, I know I've just subconsciously opened the door between your conscious and subconscious brain to help you have big ideas. For those of you who said falling asleep or waking up, here's an expression from Thomas Edison called when the penny drops. It used to come to it because he used to fall asleep at night sitting on an armchair with a penny between his knees, a tin tray on the floor. And as his muscles would relax, the penny would drop, it would hit the tin tray and he would wake up and write down whatever he was thinking. And everybody listening could think, well, that's stupid. Why would I ever do that? Well, who had more inventions patented in the 20th century than anybody else? So if you have your best ideas falling asleep or waking up, I know Google have experimented with sleep pods in the office. I suggested mm -hmm. to my boss it didn't go down that well. Um, but <laughs> so just keep a notepad by the bed because you promise yourself to remember that idea in the morning, but you never do. But here's, here's, here's what I think is more important at this present moment in time. This is a recipe. I call it a recipe for uh, innovation. What do we have now more than we've ever had before? Time to think. We've got it in abundance. Okay. Now, mix into that the, the level of all these industries that have been in slow decline for years. Okay. So, I mean, look at the headline in the New York Times today. Uh, what does it say? It says the death of the department store. Of course, it's the death of the department store because they haven't done anything innovative in 50 years. So here's, here's look. In the last three or four weeks, anybody who had yet not discovered the benefits of Amazon probably has now or Uber Eats, they probably have now. I used to go to a gym every morning. Now I don't. I go online and I pick my gym class and I do it in my back room. Will we, go, will we go back six months from now to dining out the way we used to? Go back shopping the way we used to? Go back to the gym the way we used to? Yes, we will to a certain extent, but not as we did before. I put it to you. Here's my metaphor and now multiply this by every industry on the planet i genuinely believe you and i will never shake hands with a human being again as long as we live now if something as simple as that changes what does that mean for everybody else so unless people use this time to look at their industry now there's one particular tool they could use it's about breaking the rules of all that stuff that you know has been there for years and years and years if you've never challenged it you know it's wrong why do we do it because we've always done it that way so I know you have Mark Randolph on. He used this tool to fund Netflix. Disney used, Walt Disney used this tool to, to, to create Disneyland. Um, you list the rules of your industry. Walt was showing Fantasia in the movie theater and he wanted it to mist inside the theater and he wanted heat pumped in during certain sequences and the theater owner said, no, Walt, too expensive. So Walt listed all the rules of showing his movie in a movie theater. It's dark, it's dirty, I have to go at a set time. I, Walt, can't control the environment. And he said, what if I could? 
Well, that's not provocative enough. The more absurd and provocative your what if question, the further out of your river of thinking, your area of expertise and experience you'll get. So Walt said, well, what if I take my movies out of theater? Well, that was an absurd suggestion in 1940. How the hell are you gonna do that? If you know the answer, it's iteration. If you don't know the answer, it's innovation. So he said, well, wait a minute, what if I'm, well, I couldn't make them two dimensional. I don't own any movie screens. Well, wait a minute, what if I made my movies three dimensional? Well, how the hell would mm. that work? Well, what if I made my car? If I had the people play the characters, they'd have to wear a costume. Well, if I had people in costumes, they'd have to be in different lands because Cinderella couldn't live next to Jack Sparrow because people wouldn't be immersed in her story. Oh, I know, I'll call it Disneyland. Fast forward to 2005, the Reed Hastings was working on, you know, he was, you know, like Mark Randolph had load, like you and I had loads of dollars worth of late fees in Blockbuster Video. So they listed the rules of going to Blockbuster, drive to physical store, only go during opening hours, only get three at a time, um, I have to pay a late fee. And they said, what if there was no physical store? And they looked around the world and they saw YouTube existed many years before then, but YouTube was only streaming amateur content at the time. They said, what if we only did a deal with the movie studios to stream professional content? Our store would be open 24 hours a day. Nobody would have to be kind of rewind. Everybody get the one they want opening day weekend. I'll cut the rental off at 24 hours so nobody pays a late fee. I'll take my idea to Blockbuster Video five times. They'll turn it down five times. I'll take them out of business in five years. Now, for anybody looking at Disney and Netflix and saying, oh, they have unlimited resources, we could never do that, I would challenge you, uh, to, because Walt was bankrupt in 1940, and these guys who created Netflix were working out of a garage in 2005. There was a very small company in Great Britain with very few employees that used to make glasses that we drink out of, and they noticed there was too much breakage and not enough production. This is back in the 70s. So they went down to the shop floor and listed the rules. 26 employees, conveyor belt, cardboard boxes, 12 glasses to a box, glasses being packaged 12 to a box, glasses separated by corrugated cardboard, glasses wrapped in newspaper, employees reading newspaper. So somebody asked the relatively provocative what if question, what if we poke their eyes out? Well, that's against the law and it's not very nice. But because they had the courage to ask the provocative question, the person next to him got out of their river thinking, he said, wait a minute, why don't we just hire blind people? So they did. Production went up over 20%, breakage went down over 60%, and the British government gave them a 50% salary subsidy for hiring people with disabilities. Um, so that's one tool. The other one that I think people could do, I mean, that I think every industry right now should list the right. rules of its own industry and say, what if, pick one of those rules and say, what if that rule no longer existed? Um, is think about how to re-express your challenge simply to get people to think differently. Actually, before we do that, I want to talk about diversity uh, yeah. and naive experts. Now, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? Yes, sir. Got one right Outstanding. Here. Outstanding. So here's, here's the value of why I bring a naive expert into every session I run. What or who is a naive expert and why are they in your session? They're somebody who uh, doesn't look like you and they don't think like you. They don't work for you. They don't work in your industry. What does that give them permission to do? It gives them permission to ask the silly question that all of your executives are too embarrassed to ask. It gives them permission to throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your constraints. Their job is not to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation their job is to say something to stop you thinking as you always do in your river of thinking to get you to think differently we were designing a new retail dining and entertainment complex for hong kong disneyland i had in the room 12 white male architects over 50 uh, and uh, i call that group think so i invited in a young chinese female chef because she was the antithesis of everybody else in the room and i gave them the following challenge which i will give to you now grab your pen and paper Mm -hmm. You have seven seconds. I'm going to name an object. You're going to draw it. Um, I would like you please to draw a house. 
seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, pen down. Um, let me see. I'm going to make some guesses. Uh, one door in the middle at the front. Yep. Uh, two windows, bars over them. Yes, but without the bars, okay. but yes. Okay. Uh, roof is a triangle. Mm -hmm. Shocker. Uh, here's why. I already feel like shit, Duncan. <laughs> I know where this is <laughs> so, going. <laughs> well, here's why. You jumped into your river of thinking of what a house looks like because all of your experience right. and expertise tells you that's what you didn't even consider the alternatives. The young Chinese chef, when we all held our pictures up, all of ours looked like yours, except hers. Hers was a round bamboo dish with a, uh, with a house. It was a, made like a dim sum house with a, a shrimp ball, a pork ball, and a little chimney with a Chinese lady waving out the window. We all laughed because we realized we stayed in our river thinking what a house should look like. She gave us permission to get out of our river of thinking and think differently and consider audacious architecture. On the way out of the room, uh, somebody slapped a post-it note over her picture which said, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand mm. position for the Shanghai Disney Resort that guided the entire design of the complex was distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Most companies simply don't understand, or they just undervalue diversity. Uh, they put their African-Americans and they say, oh, you should work on the African-American business. Oh, you're Hispanic. Oh, you should work on the Hispanic business. Um, well, nobody would walk into the office and ask me to work on the old white guy business because I punch him in the face. Uh, but guess what? We do it to other people every day, which is insane because we miss the bigger point. Diversity is innovation. If somebody looks different to you, they think different to you. And if they think different to you, they can help you think differently. Um, so I want to come back to re-express it. So uh, re-express it is a wonderful tool to stop people thinking as they always have. Another tool created by the master, Walt Disney. On July 17th, 1955, he said, we will not have any customers in our park. We will only have guests. With that simple re-expression, we will not have employees, we will have cast members. They'll be cast for a role in the show. They'll work on stage or backstage. They'll wear a costume, not a uniform. And with these simple re-expressions of a challenge, created a level of hospitality that's never been replicated or duplicated despite the fact that everybody has tried. Now, these people won't say, well, make that relevant to me today. Excuse me, I'm gonna have a piece of cappuccino here. So um, in 2011, if we'd asked the question that every company on the planet asked themselves, and if they continue to ask themselves this, I believe Generation Z will put them out of business. The question they always ask themselves is how might we make more money? I promise you Generation Z is gunning for you. Um, and I believe they'll take you out in less than two decades. But if you said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? you would think mm. very, very, very differently. So before I tell the story, if I were coming to, you're in Chicago right now, but if I were coming to Chicago and you and I were gonna go into business together and we're gonna open a car wash, tell me very quickly three or four essential ingredients we would must have in our car wash. Well, definitely the, uh, the, the machinery, ingredients. The machines, machines. Um, and obviously people. People. And as I said, the ingredients. So like the, the cleaning liquid, the, yeah, all that stuff. So, okay, great. Well, yeah. screw that. I tell you what, I'm coming to Chicago. You and I are going to open an auto spa together. Now, what could we, what could you put in a spa? 
here's what you'll normally hear from people. They're going to, if you say car wash, people will say water, brushes, soap, vacuum. If right. you turn it and say auto spa, you will hear masseuse, barista. I deliberately re-express the challenge to stop you thinking as you always have machines, mm. soap, water, dry, and to get you to consider the alternatives. So instead of saying, how might we make more money? We said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Have you ever been to a Disney park? Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the biggest pain point? Nine, mm. 99.9% of Americans would say standing the, in line. The, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, so we said, well, what if there were no, we use that tool. We said, what if there were no lines? What if we took away the front desk in our hotels and people didn't have to check in or check out? What if we eliminated right. the turnstiles at the front of our parks and people wouldn't have to stand in line to get in? What if they didn't stand in line for their favorite character meet and greets or for their favorite um, uh, attractions? What if they didn't pay for merchandise? What if they didn't stand in line for food and beverage? And we looked around the world and sure enough, RFID technology had existed for a long time. All we did was put it in a plastic band, call it Disney's Magic Band. It is your front door key to your room you don't check in or check out it is your theme park ticket there are no turnstiles at the entrance to the park anymore uh, you can pay for merchandise simply by touching it you can save your food on your smartphone when you walk into the restaurant touch table 47 food knows you the restaurant knows you're here the food comes fresh to you had we mm. have started by saying how might we make more money we'd have put the gate price up x percent and we'd have made our quarterly results that's called iteration but by simply reframing the challenge and asking ourselves how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point the average consumer at Walt Disney World has over an hour of free time a day every day they didn't have four years ago and what has that resulted in record revenues record revenues on food and beverage record revenues on merchandise and mm -hmm. data the millions of people who come through the gates every year are now effectively live crowdsourcing the future design of all the products and services Disney parks create by simply telling them what they like and what they don't and again these are just tools to stop you thinking as you always have and to get you to think differently and again, just to bring it home and make it just a small example to make it tangible, I was waiting for an appointment for, um, up in New York for a meeting. I was mm -hmm. sat chatting to the lady behind the reception desk for 10 or 15 minutes, got upstairs. She was so delightful. I told the boss, you know what, I'm going to hire her. She's going to come work for me. She's the most empathetic receptionist I've ever met. And he said, oh, how long were you talking to her for? I said, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, I should think. And he said, oh, that's odd. I said, well, why is that odd? He said, well, we don't have a receptionist. He's like, oh my God, who the hell was I talking to for the last 10 or 15 minutes? And I said, uh, well, her name was Sarah. She had a cream blouse. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. Sarah's our director of first impressions. Like, boom. With oh. that very simple re-expression of her job title. You know, so for example, I hear these abhorrence titles at the moment, like um, uh, executive vice president of human capital management. What an awful awful i'm sorry i thought we were people uh, i went to my daughter's office in new york not so long ago she works for a young very young agency and um i walked in the door and i met their executive vice president for human capital management and she handed me her business card and it simply said chief happiness officer and mm. i thought wow wow well isn't that her job to recruit and retain the best people on the planet well how are you going to do that make them happy and so, so right, um, right. It all, it's about taking design thinking principles and boiling them down. So, for example, um, intuition. People don't realize how powerful intuition can be. We have 100 billion neurons in our brain. We have 100 million neurons in our stomach. Uh, we've all stared at the back of the head of somebody that we thought looked quite hot. They've immediately turned around and stared back at us. Uh, well, how did they know we were looking at them? Well, guess what? Intuition. 99% of the decisions we make as consumers around the brands and services and products we choose to engage with, we went with our gut. 
And so here's the power of this. We were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often. Our data told us who could afford the Disneyland Paris brand, who had an affinity to the brand, who was coming this year, and who was a 10 out of 10 in the survey of I'm coming this year. Well, they hadn't come. So I put it to the organization that these people were either liars or procrastinators, and our data was missing some vital information. Let's go find out. So we went to go and live with families for a day. We lived with 26 different families, each of us for a day. And uh, here's what we found uh, when we were digging around with them. And our going in hypothesis was, if we build it, they will come. That's the way Disney parks were built. We spend millions of dollars on new capital investment, you'll come. So mm -hmm. that would have cost us, you know. So w w I looked at this picture on the wall. I said to this woman, how old are your children? Four or five? She goes, oh, no, love, 14 or 15. You write it down. It's an individual data point. It means nothing at the time. So when we got back together, we all had the same clue. When we asked how old the children were in the photograph in the family room, it turned out they were anywhere from two years to 25 years older in reality. How do I know that to be true? Because everybody listening to this podcast right now has a picture of their children in their family room that's at least five, 10 or 15 years old. And for those people listening to the podcast who don't have children yet, I know that your parents have that dorky one of you in the family room from fifth grade that you wish they got rid of years ago. So what's that telling us? Do we not print children of uh, photographs of our children anymore? Yes, we do. Uh, their graduations, their, their, their weddings. So what's going on here? So we dug a little deeper and we spent time with five of the mums and we found out the parents would tell you at first pass they want their children to go to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, graduate, be get, get a college degree and be happy, healthy and successful. That's what we want for our kids. Or is it? Or do we actually want them back in that little photo frame when we walk in the door, we are gods. Mm. And so we dug a bit more and these mums will tell you about these three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. But I'm a dad, I've got kids, I've got intuition. And I'll tell you about the three transitions that they described. I know exactly where I was the day my son came around the bedroom door at the age of 10 and said, are you Santa Claus? And in that one split second, imagination, creativity out the door. But what had really hurt was what he'd really said was, I'm not your little boy anymore, daddy, I'm growing up. That hurt. Mm. And so um, the next one was, dads will remember where they were. Girls, you will not. But you can text your dad at the end of this podcast and you can ask him and he'll tell you exactly where he was that day. I know where I was. I was in Kissimmee, Florida. It was a Tuesday morning. I was outside Panera uh, Bread Store. I went with my daughter who was 13. It was my left hand she dropped in public for the first time that day because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore. Now that is a seminal moment between a father and a child. Most girls will not remember where they were or the fact that it even took place. Dad's will. And then um, the last bittersweet transition for us was she got her first job up in New York. We used to drive her to college and back and unpack and pack a third of the room. This time around, we, you know, we sent her up to New York, put her in a room, knew she wasn't coming home. And so my wife and I got in the, we hugged, we cheered, we laughed, we got in the car out to uh, the Guardian and cried her eyes out all the way to the airport. So don't forget, our going in hypothesis was we build it, they will come. But by simply spending time with our consumer and challenging our data where it had holes, what we really realized was what mum does not wake up in the morning worrying about whether or not Disneyland Paris is going to have new attractions this year. She mm. wakes up every morning worrying about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they'll still, uh, while they'll still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a segmented communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy. One that drove millions of dollars in incremental revenue, and one that turned a very product-centric, we know better culture into a consumer-centric culture, where it's now mandatory for every Disney executive to work at least one day 
a year in the theme park at a frontline cast member position and also go out and spend a day with a consumer in their houses to find what's really important to them that you may or may not find in your data and your focus groups. I'm not a huge believer in focus groups because none of us live in uh, houses or apartments with two-way mirrors and people staring at us all day. So it's not really the most relaxed environment to get real truths out of people. They're much more relaxed inside their houses. And when you're inside their houses and apartments, they're with the loved one. And they're not focus groups. We invite 10 or 12 individuals in uh, because we want value for money, but you don't get the truth out of them. Couples mm. police each other. So if I said to a man by himself in a focus group, what do you do at Disney World? He's going to say, oh, I go on the thrill rides and I drink beer and play golf. I'm a manly man. If his wife is sitting next to him, she's going to go, no, no, honey. No, you did Small World 17 times back to back last year and, and you really <laughs> loved it. And you get real honesty out of couples that you don't get out of individuals. And the real insight comes from the second person. Yeah, I've, I talked about intuition. Now, right. when you were, so I want to talk about curiosity. When you were a child or, you know, what's the number one question children ask? Why? Why, 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 mm. why, why? Because they know you lied the first time, that's why. Because mm. they're really good at getting to the core consumer truth, which sometimes your data doesn't get to. And certainly right. not your consumer insights team. If you say to somebody, why do you go to Disney? Your data will tell you they go for the rides. Well, that tells me to make a capital investment strategy. But if I pause for a moment, that childlike, not childish, and said, well, why do you go for the rides exactly? Well, I like it's a small world. Why, well, why do you like it? I remember the music. Why is that important to you? Well, I used to go with my mum. Why is that significant? I take my daughter now. On the fourth or fifth way, you just found out the real reason she's going. It's got nothing to do with capital investment strategy and everything to do with her memory and nostalgia. Again, that's a communication campaign. And you would have gone in the wrong direction if you stopped at the first why. Um, when you were a little boy and you got uh, a birthday present and it came in a huge box and you took the toy out of the box and then you spent the next five days playing with the box. How do I know that? Because the box was your spaceship, it was your castle, it was your rocket ship, it was your fort until you went to school and some idiot told you it was just the box. And your creativity already starts to get challenged at a very young age. You have because of social pressureism. Yeah, yeah, not just that. Look, you're in finance, you're not creative. You're an engineer, you're not creative. You're in IT, you're not creative. You're in sales, you're not. We're all told so many times we're not creative, but we were all born creative. We've just been told so many times we're not creative. We've, we don't believe it. We've forgotten how. You have an amazing imagination. I had a weird dream last week that you don't want to tell me about. I had a mm. weird one that I'm not going So here's the thing. Here's, here's what I believe will happen in the next decade. As artificial intelligence strips away 20% of the jobs in North America, the first jobs to go will be the jobs that are programmable. Those are contained in the left-hand side of the brain. Analysis, strategy, critical thinking, finance, planning potentially even legal. The, the right-hand side of the brain, however, creativity, imagination, curiosity, intuition, the four core traits that we were all born with as humans and we were told they were not important for the last two decades and perhaps their time hadn't come. Well, they had now because I've spoken to three AI experts in the last 12 months and I've asked them, do you believe we will be able to program creativity, intuition, curiosity, or imagination any time in the next decade. And whilst nobody will predict after the next decade, the answer is for this decade, no. So the most employable skill sets as you seek to uh, employ new people, as you seek in interview process, I believe some of the skill sets we're going to need in times like this are gonna be creativity and imagination to, to get ourselves out of the mess that we currently find ourselves in. And so for example, just a couple of examples, 
there was a high school in Japan. Uh, there's been some amazing creativity in the last few weeks. You know, you say if uh, necessity is the mother of invention, I would argue father. Uh, so innovation is very much the father. There was a high school in Japan that realized they weren't going to get a high school graduation ceremony. So they got one of the kids who knows Minecraft really well to take all the photographs out of the yearbook of all the kids and the teachers and gave him photographs of the gym. And he recreated the gym and recreated everybody inside the gym. And they had their high school graduation ceremony live in Minecraft. There were a couple of guys in Lombardy in North Italy in the peak of the virus a couple of weeks back where the hotel and the hospital couldn't produce enough pumps for the ventilators. And they walked in with a 3D printer and said, give us the blueprints. And they knocked out 100 in 12 hours at a dollar a piece. And so um, that's creativity. That's imagination. And that is what we need more than ever at the moment. And, and one thing I did want to ask you, Duncan, around this is obviously you always say that the barrier is, you know, whether it's work or just kind of the, the, the routine, the busyness of things that everybody has to go through every day and not taking the time as you kind of categorized it. What if someone's listening to this right now, they're in their 20s, 30s, they're encouraged, inspired by what, what we're talking about, but then they go to companies who maybe no, don't see it the, the, the same way. How, how would you you know, how would you tell them or give them the advice to, to start enacting more creativity into their positions, into their roles, uh, even if it's not subscribed to by, by everyone around them, maybe in the team? So um, are you more familiar with Harry Potter or Star Wars? Of course, uh, Harry Potter. Okay, so I'm going to come at you with some ideas for tonight's party. We've been given $100,000 and we've been told we can come up with uh, whatever we want for tonight's party. I would like you to start each response with the words, no, because. Uh, every time you start your sentence, I want you to say no because and tell me why we shouldn't be doing my idea. So I was thinking we could turn your house into Hogwarts, right? And we could have the long dining room tables and people could choose the house they sit in. You respond and say no because. It probably would cost too much. Okay. So, all right then. I'll tell you what. What if we create a magic potions room and everybody could create their own alcoholic beverage? No, because that might create a fire. Okay, oh, wait a minute. What if we did an inter-match uh, inter Quidditch match and everybody gets their own broomstick? No, because someone might, might get hurt. Okay, so I'm going to reverse it now. We're going to do exactly the same exercise. We've got the same budget. Each time yep. you're going to respond with the words yes and and you will build on my idea, okay? Gotcha. Let's do it. All right, so I was thinking we could actually have the dining room, right, exactly as it was with the floating candles. Yes, and you know what we can do too is dress everybody up in costumes. Ooh, yes, and we could have a sorting hat at the front door and all the good people could get into Gryffindor and all the rest of them get Slytherin. <laughs> yes, and we have a Quidditch match in the middle of the living room. Ooh, yes, and we could use those, those amazing air pumps from the ground where we could actually float. When were you saying no because, the idea got smaller, not bigger. When we use yes and, the idea got bigger, not smaller. You can always take a big idea and value engineer right. it down. But far more importantly, when you're inside a big organization with lots of approval layers and lots of hierarchy and lot, et cetera, and, uh, is when you say yes and, you transfer the power of my idea to our idea and you accelerate its opportunity to get done. So if you live in a traditionally reductionist culture, very clearly signal at the beginning of the meeting, we're an expansionist session today. We, you don't get to shoot any ideas down in this particular mm. session. You only get to say yes and at the beginning of every sentence. And you don't get to shoot anything down. We are not green lighting this idea for execution. We are just greenhousing it together. Um, can't really do it on a podcast. This is what I do in workshops where I actually get in the room and show people actually how to do it.
Gotcha. No, this is really helpful. It's hilarious how even just a slight change of, of not only the, the kind of perspective mindset, but actually the words. Like as soon as you force me to say no, because I looked for every way to shut this yeah, thing down. Thing, we all know yeah. thousands of reasons why the new idea won't work. And the more senior you are in your organization, the more experience, the more expertise you've got, the more reasons you know why the new idea won't work. So you automatically sort to know because. But if you just started with the words yes and, where could mm-hmm. you go? Right. And, and you talk about this too, is, is the more expertise you have actually sometimes could be a larger barrier. No, no. No, 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 not could be. The biggest single barrier to innovation is your own river of thinking. And the more expertise and the more experience you have, the harder it is to get out of that river of thinking. My job is as a, to go into organizations and give them a toolkit to stop them thinking as they are the way they always have at the right time and get them to think differently. I'm curious to know what, what is your routine right now? Like if, if you like, just for people listening, what, what sort of a day in the life and, and more, more importantly, how do you practice uh, that muscle of creativity in your own life and work? So um, I gave somebody a challenge yesterday. I was doing a, a webinar for 500 wedding planners from around the world. And we were talking about the box and I said, okay. And I gave them a challenge. They've got seven days to go and create a wedding cake out of a box. They should probably partner with their children to do it because they'll be far more creative. And uh, whoever creates the most liked one on Instagram stories is going to get a free one one day workshop. So uh, (laughs) what I love doing is by, you know, when I was with Disney, I was in the entertainment industry. But now, Mm -hmm. you know, in less than two years, I've worked in the automotive industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the engineering industry, the oil industry, the manufacturing industry, the retail industry. And most, I believe, most ideas for innovation actually come from looking outside of your industry and borrowing back the underlying principles. Um, And there's a tool that actually does that called Where in the World Has Somebody Already Solved the Challenge I'm Working On? Um, And it's a very simple tool to use. And for me, learning from all of these different industries and being able to apply what I've learned and make connect the dots back to a different industry has really helped me help other companies think differently. And that I get a a great, I just get a buzz out of it. I get very excited about it. Amazing. Amazing. I I do have one more for you, Duncan. For people listening, you know, again, in that 20 to 30 uh, year range, what would be that one piece of advice, apart from what we already talked about, that really changed the way you this thought about easy. things? Yeah. It's easy. Do, do what you love and you'll be really good at it. The only A I ever got at school was um, uh, absent because I didn't show up for the math exam. I'm not in finance for a reason. <laughs> um, but I am good at helping people think differently, have ideas. And because, I'm, because I enjoy it, I'm good at it. And therefore, I get paid. And so right. um, for anybody who's in a job right now that they don't like, get out. You're too young. You don't have children. You don't have a mortgage. You have no risk. Get out. Do what you love. You'll be really good at it. I love it, man. Well, well, thank you so much. And and I just wanted thank to you. say one one last piece of feedback because I loved it a lot. And this is probably the, the first podcast, to be honest, I record that that was this kind of interactive. And I know you probably do this uh, a lot in, in those different speaking engagements, which would probably be much much more exciting in person. But just you know, going through those, whether it's drawing the house or the Harry Potter uh, example, you know, was not only fun, but but actually it, it puts things into even deeper perspective. So thank you. Well, for here's that. The, here's the, no, not at all. Look, people people say, well, you can come and speak. Yes, of course I can come and speak. Guess what? You can inspire and motivate on the stage, but you cannot help. People learn by doing; they do not learn by listening, and that's why the workshops are so beneficial. I love doing them. 
I love it, man. Well, thanks again, Duncan. I, cool. I appreciate you for doing this. Thank you very much. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.